Well, in case you missed it, God is moving. He is moving. Yes, go ahead and give him a hand. We had a tremendous week last week, our Kaya week, or come as you are. I'm so proud of Pastor Elijah, the worship team, the production team, all those that volunteered. So this will give us something to shout about. We had five people get baptized on Wednesday night. One was spontaneous. And then we had three, I'm sorry, four rededications to Jesus. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So today, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Welcome to Home Church. So glad you could join us today. But this is about Jesus. Everything that we do here is about Him. And two weeks ago, I started this series called King, because He is King. As I said, He is not a king. He's not a president. He's not a secretary general. He's not a leader. He's not somebody who who manages a company. (laughs) He is king of the universe, of everything seen and unseen, everything created, king over everything. The question that remains, because we are still on this earth, he has not yet come back to establish his kingdom. The question remains is will you recognize him as your king? It becomes very personal. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how he is king prophesied. A thousand years or more before he was even born, he was prophesied. That's amazing. And he fulfilled about 300 of the 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about him already. So what we talked about, if you remember, is, is because of that, we can have peace. We know that God, when he says he's going to do something, that he is actually going to do it. Amen? And there's still about 100 prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled about him. Like, he's going to come back. I mean, he fulfilled 300 of them already, so that means the next 100 that are yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled. And we have that to look forward to. And then last week, I had the awesome opportunity of preaching with Pastor Elijah. And I mean, how many of you enjoyed that? And we talked about how Jesus is king on a mission. He's missional. Just like the prodigal son, he's waiting for you to come to him with open arms. And we talked about how, and I love how Pastor Elijah calls them the religious nerds, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those are the religious nerds. They're the ones that cared more about themselves and more about dotting I's and crossing T's than they did actually about people and taking care of people. That's what God wants, is for us to care for people, right? So we talked about how that's Jesus' mission. He came to seek and save the lost, not to judge and condemn. And I think a lot of us, a lot of us still have that kind of on us, that somehow we've got to live our life correctly so that Jesus accepts us. 
that somehow he's looking at us right now with judgment and condemnation. And that, my friends, is a lie, and that is not the case. Now, you may go to other churches that have a steeple and a cross above them, and that's what they preach, that you've got to somehow be good, that your good works better outweigh your bad works, because God forbid if they don't, we cannot guarantee that you're going to go to heaven. Well, guess what? That's not the gospel. That's not the truth. Which means some of you might come in here and say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And part of the reason why I don't go to church is because they're filled with hypocrites. And the answer is, yep, we are filled of hypocrites. There's a lot of them right here, including this one up on the stage. We're all hypocrites. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is the reason why Jesus came, was to set it straight, was to take a system that was broken through sin and by the devil, and by religious leaders, and he came in this earth to make it right. And today, what we celebrate is him making a journey, taking a journey to go into a city to make it right. And it wasn't based on anything that we've done, whether it's good or bad. So where we're gonna begin today is in the book of Luke. Chapter 12, verse 49. This is where we're going to begin because I want you to understand the weight of about what he was going to do on this day known as Palm Sunday. So verse 49, he's addressing the crowd. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. That's a pretty dramatic statement. It's not a fire of judgment or condemnation, but a fire of I am the way, the truth, and the life. And either you fall on the side of believing that or you fall on the side of not believing that. The fire is going to divide. There may even be divisions in your family right now. There may be a father and a son who believes in Jesus and a mother and a daughter who don't. The question is where do you fall? And he's saying here that it's already been kindled. There's already been people choosing on which side they're going to fall. The question today is which side do you choose? He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is that baptism? He's about to be baptized with the wrath of God. He's about to take on the wrath of God. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? When you go outside at night on a clear night, you see all the stars in the universe, God made all of that. The ground that you're walking on, he made all of that. The birds that are singing, he made all of that. Which means he did all that. His wrath, I don't want to be underneath his wrath. Do you? Because there will be a time when we will face that if we're not on the right side of that fire. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. We're talking about God in the flesh on this earth who is distressed because he has got to get to the cross. He has got to somehow muscle up the courage 
to enter a city that's going to be cheering him on and then five days later nail him to a cross and how how does he do it by the power of the Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that drove him into the wilderness when he was baptized which we're going to baptize some people today praise God that same Holy Spirit that gave him that, that unction to go and confront the devil one-on-one, mano-on-mano. It's the same Holy Spirit that's driving him to the cross that at this moment, months before he used to be crucified, he's telling his disciples, I am greatly distressed. He's being driven. He knows the mission. And who does he have on his mind and on his heart every one of us. If everybody would please turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. I'm always interested in what happens before we have this tremendous moment. All these things that I preach about in the Bible. I love to go back and look at what happened to Jesus before we get to that moment. Like I I preached about the transfiguration and what what happened before and now this morning, I want to look back at the pregame before we get to the Super Bowl, okay? The pregame is just as exciting as the Super Bowl, amen? So here we go. Chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside So he's making this journey up from Galilee up to Jerusalem. He's having to go up because the elevation of Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So he's going up. He has to go through Jericho, has to go through Bethany, Bethpage, over the Mount of Olives, and into the city known as Jerusalem. And he took the 12 disciples aside. So this is privately. So away from the crowd, he gathers them around. And he is not yet quite ready to go completely public on who he is, but he's about to, because as soon as he enters the gates of Jerusalem, it's game on. And this is what he says, see, we, that's me and all of you, are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is incredible. There's a lot packed into this. First of all, he says the word we. Jesus needed the company of his disciples. He he wanted them on the night of the Last Supper when he was in Gethsemane, but they all fell asleep, and then when he was arrested, they all ran away. Again, this highlights his distress, the fact that he is also fully human as he is fully God, that he needed them to come alongside him. Like, folks, that's why we come to church. We can't do this life of following Jesus without each other. There's no way. I couldn't be here today. I mean, we just got through talking about how last week was a lot of preparation. This week, what we're doing for Holy Week, there's been a lot of preparation. We're tired, but man, we got each other. We have the Holy Spirit and we have each other. And he's saying, we, we're in this together. And what's amazing about this, this is out of all the accounts, 
prior to this one, this is the most detailed. He was able to see exactly what was going to happen to him and what he had to do. I'm going to be delivered over to the religious nerds. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. And then on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. This is God spelling it out specifically what he had to accomplish. So from this moment, we're about to transition from somewhat private to going all in public. I'm going to tell everybody who I am. And he's getting closer to Jerusalem. So before he does that, here comes the mother of the sons of Zebedee in verse 20. So this is James and John's mother. And this is what happens. They came up to him, or she came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Can you believe that? He just got through saying, I've got to go do this. And I need you to come with me. And this mother and James and John are coming up to him saying, we want something. We need something. Not, hey, we're in there with you, Jesus. We're going to be there right by your side when you're going through all this. No, we want something. And what does he say? In the next verse, he says, what do you want? I can't imagine that. Great distress. I'm going to be tortured and crucified. But you know what? I'm going to stand aside and I'm going to ask you, what do you want? What is it that we want? What is it that you want? What have you been agonizing in prayer about for months, maybe years? God has mercy on us and he answers our prayers. But what is it you want? What is it you really want? And we're going to answer that question here in a minute. So he says, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. They want status. They want prominence. They want position. What they're saying here is they don't really fully understand what Jesus came to do. They're still on that mindset that he's going to deliver them from Roman oppression. There is a greater enemy than Roman oppression. It's called you. It's called your sin. But yet they're thinking still on this worldly level that, that when you decide to go ahead and take over and the Romans are gone, I want my sons to sit on your left and right hand side. Does that speak to us today? How much we want social status, we want prominence. Every time you go on Instagram and you post something, every time you go on Facebook and you post something about you, every time you're sitting in your office wondering when your boss is gonna come and promote you, we want status. We hunger for that. I used to be there. I worked for a corporation where they fed that. They paid me for performance. And I wanted to climb that corporate ladder. That's what I wanted. And what I want sometimes takes me away from what God wants, from what really my soul wants. So Jesus answered, this is verse 22, he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What cup is that? 
That's God's wrath. And you know what she said? Or they said, so this is John and James, and and they said, we are able. Oh, how many of us are in here today that would say, I've got this. I can handle this. I'm able to do it. There are so many people in this world right now that are not thinking about their eternity, their eternal security. I got this. I'm able. They're just highlighting what the world thinks. We can do this. No, we can't. That's what Jesus said. He says, you will drink my cup. And you will, because both James and John will be highly persecuted. James will be the first martyred disciple. And of course, John was nearly boiled alive and was exiled to Patmos. They're going to drink a cup of suffering, not as great as Jesus' cup. They'll also drink the cup of the new covenant. They're going to receive him as Lord and Savior. In other words, they're going to believe. They know. So they're going to drink the cup of the new covenant as well. So they will drink that cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were in Indignant. This word is all throughout the New Testament in the Gospels. Indignant. They were angry. They were annoyed. Why? Because they're probably jealous. They want that same level of status and prominence as well. They were indignant. So Jesus called to them and said in verse 25, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever should be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's our missional king, and there is our king of kings. He's defining what it means to be in Christ, to serve God. But for him, he's given us the example, the way of how to lead and to to love people. He is defining or redefining what king means. This is not a king that's going to lord over and rule you with an iron fist. This is a king who comes to serve and to give his life for a ransom of many. And we don't understand that because we're human. We see leaders and we realize they are imperfect. We have seen kings throughout history, human history, and they have fallen or imperfect. And Jesus being king is not. He is perfect. He is not imperfect. So he moves on and as he's getting closer, he gets Closer to Jerusalem, he comes across Jericho. This is about uh, a mile away from the city of Jerusalem. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. This is the crowd that witnessed when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's this huge crowd that's following him into, into Jericho. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Who in here today is going to let Jesus pass them by? These blind men are crying out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They're crying out. The crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Today, do not let Jesus pass you by. If you're watching online, do not let Jesus pass you by. We had an opportunity today to receive him, to come back to him. Nobody took me up on it. But I believe there's still some of you in here today that need to do that. Do not let him pass you by. And no matter what voice is screaming in your head to be quiet, continue to cry out for him. Don't let him pass you by. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They recognize him as the Messiah. This is centurion style. If you remember the story of the Roman centurion, when he called him Lord as well. These men know who he is. Jesus is about to enter a city of about two million people that are crying out for him. They don't know who he is. But these two men who were physically blind could see spiritually. And they knew who he was. And they cried out to him, Lord. And they asked him to have mercy on them. Verse 32, and stopping, this is awesome. Jesus on mission, but he stops. And he called out to them and said, what do you want? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. That's our heart cry today. That's my heart cry as a pastor for every one of us, let our eyes be opened. Let us see, let us see who you are. Let us see what you're doing. Let us see where you want us to go. We are not to be blind, but we are to see. And what's awesome is that they recovered their sight and immediately followed him. These two saw what two million people did not understand. So this brings us to Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry. Chapter 21, verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And before I get there, let me, let me paint this picture for you. So Jesus, 32 times prior, has entered Jerusalem for Passover whether being carried by his parents or by going himself. He's made this pilgrimage, if I can say that word correctly, 32 times before this day. He's going into a city where historians have calculated about one and a half to two million people from a city that normally has about 50,000 on a normal day. One and a half to two million people are coming to celebrate Passover. So here he comes, and he's coming in through the east gate. And at a different gate, there's anywhere from 100 to 150,000 sheep that are entering in through the sheep gate 
to be prepared for the sacrifice on Passover. Yet he's going through the east gate and he is the one lamb that needs to be sacrificed. So coming down the Mount of Olives and coming into the city through the east gate and if you were to see the east gate today, it's amazing because first of all, the gate is underground, the original gate, because the Romans, when they destroyed the city and they rebuilt, they build above the ruins. So the original gate is below, but right above it is what's called the East Gate or the Golden Gate. And Saladin, who was the Muslim leader who who conquered the Christian Crusaders many years ago, went ahead and bricked up that gate because he knew that the Messiah was going to go through that gate. And in front of that gate, he put a cemetery thinking that there's no way that the Messiah would be able to cross through the dead and go through an enclosed gate. Well, they don't know Jesus. And so when he does come back, he will come back on the Mount of Olives and he will take this same path. And I'm telling you, graveyard and a bricked up gate is not going to keep him out. So here he comes and, you know, I... I'm just amazed because some of you who know me well, if I'm on mission, I've got something going on, sometimes it's hard for me to stop and take the time to listen. And with him, he did that on two occasions, one for a selfish need and one, I believe, was a genuine need because the Bible says he had pity on the blind men. But he still attended to those needs all knowing that when he goes through that gate, all eternity is going to be changed. So he enters, and all these people are there. And this is where we pick up. Verse 2, he tells his two disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the who? The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." This is out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This was about 500 years before Jesus was born. This was prophesied this very moment. So not only do we have Jesus tending to the needs of people as he was in great distress to accomplish his mission, but he's also mindful of the word and how he has got to fulfill these prophecies. And he remembered this and the disciples went. And this is where it says in verse 6, it says the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. In verse seven, they brought the donkey and the colt and put them their, on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Donkey, why did King Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Because in those days, a donkey was a symbol. When a king rode on it, it was a symbol of peace. He was coming in, in peace. 
Even now, 2,000 years later, he's here in peace. He's patient. He wants people to see him as who he is, Lord and Savior, King of kings. And just like I preached on a few weeks ago about how he said that all these things that we're experiencing in the world right now must take place, but the end is not yet. Because the next time he comes back, it is not going to be on a donkey. Revelation chapter 19. And yes, I am going to read this. The rider on a white horse. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is a horse for a warrior. When you see the white horse and him on it, it's too late. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Here's something really cool. If you accept him today, guess what? You're going to be part of that army on a white horse. (laughs) And I can't ride a horse. And I think I'm even allergic to a horse, but on that day, I'm not going to be. Oh my gosh, I I have sat and I have prayed about that moment and I've meditated on it. And let me tell you something, it's going to be amazing. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There is no more mercy at this time. It's all wrath. And on his robe and on his thigh, for those of you that don't like tattoos, listen to this. He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Today, we recognize him, Palm Sunday, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, coming in peace as our King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's now or never, because when he comes back on that horse, it's too late. He will come again, and it will be to make war. Verse 8. Most of the crowd, this is back in in Matthew chapter 21, most of the crowd, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does this mean? This means save us. Hosanna means save us. It's a proclamation, it's a declaration that we want you to save us. But they got it wrong. This whole moment, what I felt like God was telling me was almost, almost insulting to Jesus. 
because they were worshiping him as a king that was gonna overthrow the Roman Empire, not as king of kings like we just read in Revelation. This is almost insulting. They wanted to be saved from the Romans, not from themselves. And what we should be crying out as individuals is, Hosanna, save us from ourselves. In verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they were saying, who is this? There's your proof. They didn't know who he was. Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Prophet. Back in the day when I was traveling a lot, I I flew a lot and I flew in and out of Chicago O'Hare quite a bit. And I'll never forget this. Um, For some reason I needed a, 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 not a limousine, but a car to pick me up um, because I needed to get into the city to meet up with somebody. And so that person had a car sent to me. And the driver who was driving that car was from the Palestinian territory. And he started speaking Arabic to me and I was just like, uh, hi. <laughs> and he's like, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not Arabic? And I said, uh, no. He goes, you're not Muslim? And I said, I said, no. He goes, well, you look like it. So everybody laugh, get your laugh out right now, yep. Yes, I was that guy on 9-11. After 9-11, I was always pulled aside for random searches, that, that's me. So he, he says, you look like, one of, look like one of my brothers. He goes, if you came with me back to the Palestinian territory and not open your mouth, people would think you're one of us. Like, oh, interesting. And I don't even remember how we got on the topic, but I, we started talking about Jesus. And because I, I told him, I said, no, I'm Christian. Because he asked me, that's right, he asked me if I was Muslim. And I said, no, I'm Christian. And I told him what that meant. I told him the gospel. And he was like, we don't believe that. And I'm like, well, what do you believe? I mean, what, what do you say about Jesus? And he said, he's just a prophet. That's what we believe. A good teacher and a prophet. Saying exactly what all of these people, the entire city that was stirred up, was saying refusing to believe, even though he had proven himself many a time that he is indeed the Son of God. What is it that you want? Do you want to be comfortable with the idea that he's just a teacher, he's just a prophet? Or do you want to get uncomfortable and admit that you're a sinner and say, no, 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 (laughs) he is more than a teacher and a whole lot more than a prophet? He is the Son of God. Because this was what happens, and this is his response to people saying, well, we don't know who he is. No, he's just a prophet. His response was this. He gets off his donkey, and then he enters the temple, verse 12, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You know what Jesus is doing here? He is setting up shop. For the next few days, he is going to be confronting the religious nerds. He is going to be very open and honest about who he is and why he came. 
He is going to go toe-to-toe with all the learned ones, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and right in front of them, he is going to heal many people. Because it says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, but he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. There is that stinking word again. Why? He's healing people. He is showing them that he is God right in front of them. The words that he has spoken to them, they're like, I've never heard someone speak on such authority as he has. Yet they were indignant because they were more concerned about themselves than about anybody else. Highlighting our condition as human beings When it all boils down to it, we're more concerned about us than anybody else. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? They realize. These people really, what they're saying is, this is the Messiah. This is God. They're trying to correct him, correct these people. They shouldn't be saying this. And Jesus said to them, yes. In other words, yeah, I hear it. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? This is in reference to Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, where David is praising the Messiah. Jesus basically is saying, I hear them. They're somewhat wrong, and this is what they mean, that I am the Messiah. He is identifying himself through action and through word, I am Messiah. What was prophesied in the book of Psalms, I am the Messiah. And in verse 17, in leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. At that very moment, his fate was sealed in the sense that the Pharisees now were full on. It's time. It's time to take them out. If everybody would please stand. As I meditate on what we've read today together and as we'll be gone through together verse by verse what I continually try to do and I I ask you to do this too when you read the Bible when you read especially the gospel accounts I ask you to feel feel the emotion what Jesus went through was just unreal the emotion the the journey just to get to Jerusalem the the questioning is anybody with me as I go through this as I'm about to go through this will there anybody be with me the the feeling of 
entering a place where every one of those people that are yelling out at him need to be saved, yet they don't know who he is. The feeling of being alone. He knew God, the Father, was with him. But how many of us know that, yet we still feel alone because there's nobody there to support us? Palm Sunday, it's not about palm branches. It's not about us dressing up, getting ready for Resurrection Day next week. Easter eggs, bunnies, rushing to the store before, you know, because of COVID, everything is out, so we got to rush to the store and get what we need by preparing for dinner on Sunday with a family. No, it's about our King, who is God, who's going to a Roman cross so that our sins would be forgiven. And it's a very sobering thought. And today, as we are crying out to God with our needs, what Jesus is asking is the same question he asked the mother of James and John, the same question that he asked the blind men. What do you really want?